Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you, buddy. Oh, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Pastor David. Good to see you guys. Good to see you too, Pastor David. <laughs> oh, Anson. <clears throat> right, 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 yeah. Well, hey, good to, good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. I, listen, I, I know you're tired and yesterday was long and uh, so thanks for thanks for being here. Um, I don't know, you know, how many of you are history nerds or history buffs or you know like history, care about history. Um, it it kind of it kind of cranks my tractor a little bit, um, and so uh, I always um, I'm always curious uh, about what has come before us, and especially as it relates to. Uh, Christianity and the life of the church, um, there is much that uh, we can learn that we should learn, uh, and there is um, much reason for us to kind of think about these things together and try to find ways to apply history into our current context. Um, and so, you know, in a couple days, everybody's going to dress up and, you know, trick-or-treat and, and all that. Um, but uh, October 31st really sort of brings about uh, a, a different emphasis, I, I think, for us um, as Christians, certainly as Protestants, um, as we think about the Protestant Reformation that began on October 31st, 1517. But uh, long before, really a couple of centuries before the Protestant Reformation came a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. And so I want us to think a little bit about Wycliffe uh, tonight. Um, generally, um, I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to technology, and so especially formatting things. And so if the formatting looks just a little bit off tonight, that, that's, that's me. That's, that's all me, all right? But hopefully, um, hopefully you, the point just you know, gets across. So let me pray. Um, I want to jump into this. Uh, the idea is not to, certainly not to bore you at all. Um, if you have questions kind of throughout, if I say something that doesn't make any sense, like feel free to just throw your hand up and ask questions. If at the end you have any questions that you want to ask, um, feel free to, you know, kind of feel free to ask those and we'll try to answer and just be helpful generally. So let's take a few minutes, do this tonight. Let's pray, and then um, we'll, we'll get to it. All right, God, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for the gathering of your people throughout this day. God, as we've heard from your word, um, and now just kind of a unique moment for us to kind of think about church history for a few moments. God, why it matters, this particular figure of John Wycliffe and um, all that was, uh, that was won, all that was preserved. Uh, through Wycliffe's short um, but meaningful life. So God, I pray that we would care about these things, and Lord, that you would use these things in us for our good. God, as we continue, um, God, to stand upon truth, as we continue to hold, uh, just to hold forth the truth of the Scriptures, what they are and what they do in the midst of a culture 
that continually tries to negate uh, the truth of your word. So God, help us for a few moments tonight in this way we pray. Amen. Well, October 31st, 1517, um, this is probably one of the moments of church history that everybody knows. Martin Luther, there in Wittenberg, Germany, walks up to the door of the local church there, and I think history has sort of made this moment something that it probably was not. I think history has made this moment, you know, like chariots of fire is kind of playing in the background, and, you know, Martin Luther strides up to the door, and, uh, you know, he swings really big with his hammer, and it kind of reverberates throughout all of, of history. The reality is, what Luther did on that day was pretty normal. Students and teachers would do this all the time. They would write something, write a document, and they would kind of walk it up to the center of town where the church was. They would kind of tack it up or nail it up to the door of the church. People, maybe you would pass by and, and read it. Maybe you would pay attention to it. Maybe you wouldn't. But Luther does that on October 31st, 1517. He nails his 95 theses to the door there. It was certainly an important moment in the history of the church. However, a couple of centuries before Luther came a guy by the name of John Wycliffe who would work and set the stage for the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. I think we know a lot about Luther. We know a lot about Calvin. We know a lot about Zwingli. We know a lot about the reformers of the 16th century. But what is sometimes forgotten is that Luther and the gang, they didn't get to where they were just kind of by themselves. What, what, they, what they were doing in the 16th century was not something new. There had been people to come before them to sort of set the stage. And so John Wycliffe is one of those people. He has been called, as we'll see in a little bit, the morning star of the Reformation. Um, I want to just kind of show you this. A lot of the information that I'm sharing with you tonight comes from this book um, written by Steve Lawson, The Bible Convictions of John Wycliffe. The picture's not amazing there, but on the very bottom of that picture, um, this book is part of a series called A Long Line of Godly Men. These are relatively short. They're typically no more than about 200 pages. Um, you can read them pretty quickly. And they are just biographical sketches of various figures throughout the history of the church. I would absolutely commend that series to you. There's probably 10 books or so in that series. Um, you know, a lot, of different, a lot of different folks from church history. So if you've maybe thought, I'd like to know a little bit more about church history, would love to learn a little bit more, that's a great place to start. Um, John Piper has a series of books called The Swans Are Not Silent. Um, you can buy those individually in more recent years. They've compiled them all into one kind of really large volume. He does the same thing, just takes a lot of figures from church history, writes about them, and certainly shows us why not only were those people important then, but why they are important to us now. So I'm really indebted to Dr. Lawson's book on John Wycliffe for um, a lot of the information that we're kind of talking through tonight. So Wycliffe was born in 1330, uh, died in 1384. So again, not a terribly long life, um, just 54 or so years there. Wycliffe was born in northern England. Um, if you are familiar with the you know, geography or whatever of northern England, the area that we now call 
Yorkshire, um, the Yorkshire Dales of Northern England. That's where Wycliffe was born. Wycliffe was born, um, he was born to a sheep farmer. And it's just a reminder to us of, you know, like a moment in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we're told that um, usually the way that God works is God does not take the mighty, He does not take the noble, He does not take kind of the elite of the world, but in God's economy, He so often does what? He takes the despised. He takes the things that are not in order to shame the things that are. Um, And so this is just another kind of place in the history of Christianity where we see God doing that. Um, Wycliffe comes from a family, a a good family, a solid family. But, you know, if you're looking for the Wycliffe family in the list of the nobles of England, you're probably not finding the Wycliffe family name there. They were sheep farmers. However, God uh, God took John Wycliffe Um, and used him for great and glorious purposes. God does not ask of us that we be amazing. God does not ask of us that we be awesome. God just asks of us that we be faithful and that we be usable in His hands. And so often is the case that God takes those that the world would just look past and God says, yep, that's the one. That's the man. That's the woman right there that I want to use. By the time Wycliffe is 16, he is enrolled at uh, Balliol College at Oxford University. So this is one of the, um, in fact, it's a little disputed, but this is said to be the oldest college um, in, in the world, really. And uh, again, there, there's some dispute uh, about that, but at least the people at Balliol College, um, they hang on to that pretty good. Uh, by the time he's 16, uh, Wycliffe is enrolled at Balliol College, Oxford University. In 1349, the Black Plague. Um, all of you CC little, all you CC students in here with um, the history sentences, you should remember Black Plague. All right, and so the Black Plague is sweeping through Europe. Um, lots of death, lots of destruction. Terrible, terrible, terrible years there in Europe. However. God, in His sovereignty, would take uh, Wycliffe in the midst of that, and when everybody was sort of confined and um, you know not a lot of activity kind of going on during that time, uh, He would take Wycliffe and begin to work in Wycliffe's heart to actually bring him to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's uh, Steve Lawson in the book writes this about Wycliffe's, um, about his salvation. The visitation of the Almighty sounded like the trumpet on the judgment day in the heart of Wycliffe. Alarmed at the thoughts of eternity, the young man, for he was a mere uh, youth, passed days and nights in his cell, groaning and sighing and calling upon God to show him the path he ought to follow. He found it found that path in the Holy Scriptures and resolved to make it known to others. And so this devastating plague is sweeping across Europe, but under God's sovereign hand and according to God's sovereign providence, God is at work. As Wycliffe was holed up, it says in his cell, he was not in prison, as he was holed up kind of in his dorm room, if you will, um, the Lord is at work in Wycliffe's heart, bringing him 
to salvation. So Wycliffe is born again, uh, and as the, the plague kind of lifts and, and life resumes, Wycliffe will earn his divinity and his theology degrees by 1369, and he pretty quickly begins to rise to fame there at uh, Oxford. He becomes professor at Queen's College in Oxford, and it's at this point, kind of at this post, where Wycliffe earns a nickname. Um, to his friends, this, this nickname is, is sort of a term of endearment, to those that are generally annoyed with Wycliffe, and that number continued to grow almost exponentially, uh, the nickname became uh, kind of a term of derision from them. He was called the Evangelical Doctor. The Evangelical Doctor. He earned that nickname because Wycliffe sought to apply the Scriptures to absolutely every single area of life. He intended that in his own life, that he would just have a very strict adherence to the Word of God. If the Word of God said to do this, then Wycliffe understood that to mean, I'm supposed to do that. If the Word of God said, don't do this, Wycliffe took that to mean, I'm not to do that. And that seems like such a simple, kind of a, a simple deal for, for us, but we have to remember that during this time, there's not a lot of that mindset going on. Wycliffe would say that Holy Scripture is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith, and the foundation for reform. So Wycliffe is saying just in general, the highest authority that we have and under which we live are the Scriptures. Scriptures are the absolute standard of faith, meaning what we believe is derived from the Bible. And lastly, if we seek to bring reform to the life of the church, then it is going to have to be in accordance with the Scriptures. The 14th century, still in the midst of those dark ages, the 14th century was a particularly dark time in the life of the church. Um, there was absolutely not a whole lot going on. Listen to some of these testimonies about this, uh, this time frame. The religious scene in England was as pitch black as a starless midnight. Christianity was in a sad state. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, few, if any, understood His doctrine. Uh, that was uh, John Fox. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, that's who that is. Uh, John Broadus was the first president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in Louisville. He said this, Before Wycliffe, we find little in English preaching that is particularly instructive. And so there's just, you kind of get the point, right? There's just not really a whole lot going on when it comes to faithful gospel ministry, faithful gospel preaching, uh, culturally really a part, around that part of the world, it is the dark ages, and that is certainly true in the life of the church. There is very little emphasis on the Bible, there's very little emphasis on holy living, there's very little emphasis on evangelism, very little emphasis on faithful preaching. And so, Come back to Wycliffe. He's there at Queen's College. He's got this professorship. And over the next decade or so, 
Wycliffe, through his writing, through his speaking, through his preaching, Wycliffe is going to begin to sort of rise to fame. Uh, He is, in a lot of ways, the lone voice in the wilderness. Um, He is, in a lot of ways, the lone voice saying, hey, Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. And everybody else is kind of looking at him funny in the midst of this, but Wycliffe holds the line. As a result, people are attracted to that. He is a light in the darkness, and some things begin to happen in Wycliffe's life that are going to position him for pretty profound influence throughout England. He's going to be appointed as the royal commissioner to France. And so he has found, um, you know, he has kind of found grace, if you will, in the eyes of the English court. And so he begins to have some positions and prominence that are afforded to him. By 1374, Wycliffe is back from France. He's given a church near his beloved Oxford where he will pastor, and he becomes the royal chaplain of parliament. So as parliament meets together, when they convene, Wycliffe is there. He is in their midst. He is in a position to be able to meet with parliamentarians, and he is in a position to be able to start giving shape to the laws and to the life of England. Wycliffe is going to use this new platform uh, not only to give some shape to the laws and the life of England, uh, but Wycliffe is going to use this newfound position uh, to kind of start going at the Pope a little bit. It's going to start with just a bit of a ripple, and then uh, Wycliffe's going to find his footing, and uh, it's going to get interesting pretty quickly. Uh, Wycliffe sees in the Pope and in the Catholic church, which is dominating the religious landscape of the known world at that time, Wycliffe is seeing some things there that are concerning at best, outright unbiblical at most. He is accusing the Pope of abusing his power. Uh, The Pope believes he has been given a a certain power and position uh, from God handed down through the Apostle Peter, and so as a result, uh, and as being the Pope, I am the head of the church ordained by God, and so therefore what I say goes, and essentially I, the Pope, can do no wrong. So Wycliffe sees the errors in the papacy and begins from his new platform to speak out against these things. He's going to confront the Pope and the kind of the papal edicts that will come from Rome, he's going to uh, essentially confront the Pope by saying that the Bible, not the Pope, not the traditions of the Catholic Church, but the Bible is the sole basis of all rule, of all authority, and all practice in the church. That sounds really normal to us, and we're thankful for that. However, if you're the Catholic Pope of the 14th century, you're going to have some problems with that. Because that is rubbing right against the grain of what you believe to have been given to you by God. Descendant again from the Apostle Peter himself. And so then, when this guy shows up on the scene saying, hey, actually, uh, it's not the Pope 
that's the sole rule for authority and doctrine and practice. It's actually the Bible you can now see where conflict is going to arise. And so, May 22nd, 1377, the Pope issues five papal bulls against Wycliffe. Edicts. Uh, proclamations of Wycliffe's what the Pope is going to call his heresy. Uh, reasons that he should be ignored, uh, silenced, or punished. The Pope is going to call Wycliffe the master of errors, and he orders Wycliffe to come to Rome to face charges of heresy. Um, Wycliffe declined. He was not having it. Uh, a couple of things, uh, maybe, maybe more, uh, to go to Rome and to face these charges of heresy, there's really only one verdict that's going to be handed down. And that's going to be the verdict of guilty. And if Wycliffe is found guilty, like so many who uh, had come before and would come after him, that would mean certain death. Um, secondly, and for Wycliffe, probably more importantly, the Pope in Wycliffe's eyes has absolutely no authority. Uh, he is just a man uh, living in a pretty sweet house, but he's just a man and he doesn't get to command us. Um, just because he issues these orders and these edicts doesn't mean that we have to respond. If you're the Pope, and uh, you check your mail one day, and there's a response from Wycliffe that says, hey, sorry, I'm declining your invitation. Uh, you're you're going to be pretty upset about that. And so the hostility between the Pope, between uh, Wycliffe, and really the entire Catholic Church, that hostility continues uh, to grow, it continues to fester. And uh, you might would think at that point, that Wycliffe would kind of just dial things back a little bit and maybe let's just kind of keep our head down, go about our business a little more quietly. Uh, that was simply not for Wycliffe, for any of the reformers, uh, for any of the faithful saints throughout the history of the church. That was just simply not going to happen. And so in the spring of 1381, 136 years before October 31st, 1517, 136 years before Luther would stride up to the, the door in, in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, the first hammer stroke of the Reformation fell. Because in the spring of 1381, Wycliffe would write a document called the Twelve Conclusions. So before Luther's 95 Theses came this really foundational document that Luther would end up referencing often uh, as he's thinking about things in his day, as he's writing his own 95 theses, he's referencing Wycliffe's uh, 12 conclusions. And when Wycliffe writes these 12 conclusions, you can go online, by the way, just Google John Wycliffe, 12 conclusions, and you can read these things. Uh, they are going to be a shot, not merely across the bow, but Wycliffe will put the Pope and the Catholic Church in his very crosshairs, and he will write these 12 conclusions which strike at the very core of Catholicism. And at the very core of Catholicism, certainly in Wycliffe's day, was the doctrine 
of uh, transubstantiation. Uh, and this is still very much a key, a, a core tenet of doctrine and theology and belief within the Catholic Church of our day. Uh, Wycliffe is writing against uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which says that in uh, the Lord's Supper, um, that, the, that the bread literally becomes the, the body of Christ and that the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. And for just, you know, because for, for time's sake, there's just not time to delve into those particular aspects of, of Catholic theology, but that serves as one of the foundational core tenets and beliefs. Whether that was in the 1300s or in the 21st century, that very much still remains. And so Wycliffe kind of puts this in his crosshairs, addressing these things according to Scripture, and just absolutely sets the world on fire. Um, He absolutely kind of changes the game when it comes to Christianity in the life of the church. Uh, this author, John Wilson, says this about his 12 conclusions. These theses were bold beyond precedent. Nothing so daring had been done in the entire history of the medieval church. The boldness of the attack can only be understood and appreciated when it is borne in mind that the real presence was regarded as the cardinal doctrine of the church. It was the very center and citadel of the faith. The blow fell like a thunderbolt. The church, meaning the Catholic church, was attacked at its very life center. And so then the fallout from this was immense. Wycliffe is going to lose just about everything that the world had afforded to him. It cost him his professorship at Oxford. He's no longer welcome at Parliament. He loses that chaplaincy there. Um, however, the Lord was not done with Wycliffe. In fact, the Lord was really just getting started with Wycliffe. Wycliffe would then raise up a group of preachers. Um, essentially, he would uh, start a kind of think of it as a pastor's college almost. And uh, these guys, this kind of group of preachers, they would become known as the, the Lollards. Now, the, the term Lollard was used as a, a term of derision for Wycliffe and his preacher boys because the word lollard meant uh, mumble or, or a, a mumbler. You know, these guys are just, they're just mumbling this ridiculous, this ridiculous stuff. They, they don't make any sense. They, they're just, they shouldn't be listened to. They shouldn't have a hearing. And so uh, it was actually the lollards who would come alongside of, uh, of Wycliffe, not only learning from him, but helping to promote uh, that kind of these core tenets of doctrine and scripture that Wycliffe was really digging into. Um, you know, just kind of thinking a, a little bit more historically for a few minutes, and then we'll kind of turn the corner to try to apply some of this stuff. One of the great tragedies of the pre-Reformation church uh, was the absence of Bibles uh, in, in the hands of just kind of the common everyday Christian. So at, at this point, again, pre-Reformation, uh, the only copies of the Bible that were available really anywhere were, uh, were written in Latin, 
Um, and so then the average citizen, the average person, the average Christian kind of sitting in the pew during Catholic Mass, they could not read uh, the Bible. They didn't even have a copy of the Bible. It was purposefully and intentionally kept out of their hands. If you are the Pope, and if you are the priest, and uh, you are the only people around who can read Latin, if you're able to keep the Bible out of people's hands so that they don't have access to it, number one, and if they do have access to it, they can't read it. If you're able to do that, then guess what? You can say whatever you want to say. You can do whatever you want to do, and nobody in the pew is going to be able to say, well, I was reading in the Bible the other day, and I think you're wrong about that. And so then, the abuses, especially in light of Wycliffe's opposition, the abuses coming from the Pope and the Catholic Church don't diminish. They, in fact, only increase. And so by the time, you know, again, a couple of centuries later, when Luther shows up, and he begins to write, and he begins to defend Christianity in the face of the Pope and the Catholic Church of his day, Luther's dealing with a whole lot more than Wycliffe and the others um, were dealing with in the 14th century. And so, this is one of the great tragedies of the pre-Reformation. There were not copies of the Bible on your, you know, your uh, coffee table at home. Uh, they, you could not get access to it. Uh, again, this is, lo- again, even still long before like the printing press, right? And so in order to get a copy of anything was just a, a bit of a chore. Uh, so it's just a very difficult time in the life of, um, in the life of the church. One of Wycliffe's greatest contributions then, uh, to church history is, uh, his labor in translating the Bible uh, from Latin into English and beginning the process of getting the Bible into the hands of just kind of everyday, everyday uh, saints, everyday people. By the way, again, long before kind of Gutenberg's uh, printing press, it took about 10 months, almost a year, to translate, to write into, copy into English just one copy of the Bible. And so this is just a tedious process, right? It's a slow work, but, uh, but Wycliffe and the Lollards are steady at, uh, at work in this. So as you know, uh, the, the sun begins to set on Wycliffe's life, he was condemned as uh, a heretic by a council there in Oxford. I think this was, what, this was particularly wounding uh, to Wycliffe. He had given so much uh, to the university there at Oxford. He had given so much to the church and to the, the, the city there in Oxford. Late in his life, he was condemned as a heretic. Once again, uh, he was told, you got to go to Rome and stand before the Pope. And once again, Wycliffe was like, nah, I don't think so. We're not going to do that. So uh, he stays. He is essentially a, uh, a wanted man um, but unfortunately, December 28, 1384, Wycliffe suffers a stroke, and then three days later, uh, he would, on uh, New Year's Eve, he would pass away. While on his deathbed, Wycliffe was visited by some of his opponents. He was asked to recant. Uh, he was asked on his deathbed to take it all back, and his reply, I shall not die. 
but live, and shall again declare the evil deeds of the friars. I'm not recanting anything, right? Uh, I am not going to die. I will yet again live. And Wycliffe intended that in that eternal life of his, he would continue. He would continue to declare the evil deeds of the friars. You know, when we think about Wycliffe's life, he's been given this nickname, uh, the morning star of the Reformation. Lawson would say that history records Wycliffe was the initial bright light to appear in the dark days preceding the formal Protestant movement. By the time of Luther, and again 1517, the groundwork for, if you are familiar with the Protestant Reformation, you recall the five solas of the Reformation, uh, one of those being sola scriptura, both of those Latin words that mean Scripture alone. Uh, By the time of Luther in 1517, Scripture alone had already been established through the life and the ministry of John Wycliffe. Not even Luther. As powerful as he was, um, and as much as the Lord used Luther, Luther was not standing uh, just by himself. He was standing on the shoulders, if you will, of those who had come before him. Wycliffe had already established that no, not the Pope, but Scripture. Not tradition of the church, but Scripture is the sole authority in the Christian life. In Wycliffe's judgment, a lack of preaching based upon the Word alone was the cause of the spiritual deadness of the age. It was as if one were to prepare a meal without bread. I want us to think just maybe a little specifically here, as Wycliffe really kind of honed in on the necessity of Scripture, what were a few of the kind of really important particulars that came out of Wycliffe's ministry? And I think as we look at these, we'll begin to get a sense and an understanding of why Wycliffe's life and ministry so many years ago, why that still matters to us today. Wycliffe said and defended much in regards to Scripture, but he focused primarily on uh, Scripture's place, its prominent place in the life of believers and in the church. So number one, Wycliffe is saying all throughout his ministry, when you read his writings, this, this theme continues popping up. He knew that the Bible was to be the foundation for all ministry. For everything that the church does. Most certainly what happens in the pulpit. That Scripture, and Scripture alone, is to be the foundation for all ministry. He knew that England could never be converted to Jesus Christ apart from the preaching of the Word of God. So Wycliffe is saying, no, it's not tradition. And it's not just what the Pope and the priest are saying. It is Scripture alone. He believed the essence of ministry was not in celebrating the sacraments, but in preaching the Word of God. Secondly, what Luther or sorry, what Wycliffe is emphasizing all throughout his ministry is the divinely inspired nature of the Word of God. This had absolutely been 
lost. When the Pope and when whatever he says, when that's the greatest reality, the greatest authority in the room, you have already lost the doctrine of Scripture's uh, divine inspiration. So Wycliffe then is saying this, the Bible alone is the only living book that implants eternal life to the barren soul. No religious leader or church tradition has that life-giving and soul-saving power, not even the Pope. Does it sound like in our day, we need more Wycliffe's who will say, no, it's not tradition. It's not the current cultural mandate. It's not what the current cultural leaders and influencers are saying. It is the truth and the authority of the Word of God. Give us people. Give us preachers who will stand on the truth of God's Word and proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Wycliffe is holding forth in his doctrine of Scripture, he is holding forth that the Bible is perfectly inerrant. He would say this, the Holy Scripture is the faultless, most true, most perfect, and most holy law of God, which it is the duty of all men to learn, to know, to defend, and to observe. He's saying about Scripture what Scripture says about Scripture, what faithful saints have said about Scripture for some 2,000 plus years, that the Bible, because it is divinely inspired, because it is breathed out by God, it is free from error. It, 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 there is even no mixture of error. There is not a hint of error. And Wycliffe is calling people back. It's calling them away from the erroneous edicts of Rome and calling them back to the true, divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God. He is also saying about the Bible that the Bible is absolutely sufficient. Guys, this is such a massive, all of these are massive issues in our day still. This one remains really massive. Wycliffe would say that everything necessary is found in Scripture, and what is not there is unnecessary. I love that. Everything that's necessary, we find it where? We find it in the Scriptures. And uh, what's not there is just not necessary. It's not necessary for us when it comes to knowing God. It's not necessary for us when it comes to living out the Christian life. Everything that we need as it pertains to life and godliness, as 2 Peter 1 is telling us, is found in the sacred Scriptures. So then, we don't get to sideline the Bible, Wycliffe says. We don't get to just kind of put it on the shelf. We don't get to abuse it. We don't get to twist it and pervert it for our own selfish ends and desires. The Bible, God's divinely inspired, completely inerrant Word is absolutely sufficient. It is able, it is necessary for all of faith and practice. 
Uh, Wycliffe would talk about the Bible's internal unity, that all of Scripture is God's singular word. uh, And he's giving a helpful hermeneutic, uh, which is essentially the practice of interpreting Scripture. Uh, the, uh, The best tool for interpreting the Bible is the Bible. That's exactly right. Um, and there's so much to say uh, about that helpful hermeneutical tool there in reality. But again, what is, what is Wycliffe doing? In every possible way, he's taking you back to where? He's taking you back to Scripture. He's taking you to truth. He's taking you away from the council of Rome. He's taking us away from the council of our age, the philosophy of our day, and returning us back to the reality of Scripture. A couple more. He talks about the Bible as the supreme authority. It is alone the supreme law that is to rule church, state, and Christian life without traditions and without statutes. He's speaking about the Bible as the final judge. So he wrote a work, uh, it's a brief work. You can find all of his works online. You can't really find them in book form. Uh, they just don't really exist, but if you ever want to read anything from Wycliffe, you can go online. All of this stuff is uh, generally there. He wrote uh, the truth of Holy Scripture and said this, the Bible is the ultimate judge by which the church, tradition, councils, and even the Pope must be tested. It's not the Pope's own standard. It is the Bible which serves as the final judge. So, there's a lot there, a lot to consider. Let me just try to maybe mention two or three things here to wrap it up. What does uh, the life of John Wycliffe, or why does the life of John Wycliffe, why does it matter to us all these centuries later in 2023? Well, at least a couple of things. Number one, it matters because you and I, we have unfettered access to God's Word in our own language because of the life and the ministry and the work of John Wycliffe. Uh, Others would come along after him. Uh, William Tyndale, uh, another name so familiar to church history, who would play such a massive part in getting uh, copies of God's Word out to the uh, kind of the average person in the pew if you will. But that work began with John Wycliffe and his understanding that every single person needed unfettered access to the Word of God. And so what that means then is that every time you pick up one of your many copies of the Bible that you have in your home, that that has come to you um, in the face of great opposition, and at, for many, at the cost of blood. Wycliffe would not ultimately give his life as a martyr, per se. Others would, again, they would come after him. They would, uh, they would give their lives. Tyndale burned at the stake. So many others uh, brutally martyred for the sake of the Gospel. Um, but every time we pick up a Bible, God's precious holy and true word, we ought to just, even if it's just a passing thought, we ought to remember that that has come to us at great cost in the face of much opposition. 
And there's a sense where when we take up our Bibles to read them on our own, to preach God's Word, uh, to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, there is a sense where we ought to just be so thankful. Just so thankful for the ways that God has used men and women throughout the ages to preserve His Word so that you and I today just have this unfettered access to it. I would also remind you that there are still many, uh, many, many, many throughout the world that still do not yet have copies of the Word of God in their language. And so the work of Wycliffe is not done. Uh, There are still efforts ongoing. Uh, Bible translator uh, efforts through missionaries and mission organizations that are still at work in translating the Bible into the known languages around the world. At kind of most recent count, there are still some 3,400 unreached people groups, we believe, throughout the world. People that have never heard uh, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That do not have access to God's Word in their language. And here you and I sit. It's a good blessing of God. I don't say this to make us feel guilty in any way. But we sit in our homes and in our offices with copies upon copies of the Word of God. I hope that remembering people like John Wycliffe will produce a thankfulness in us. That we would not take God's Word for granted that we would remember how it has come to us. I think secondly, we want to remember, or kind of why this matters to us, is that Wycliffe was not merely standing up for something that he believed in. Wycliffe was standing up to defend the very Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lots of people throughout history have stood up for what they believed in. Uh, Lots of people have stood in the city square and kind of stood up for something that they believed in very strongly. To be sure, Wycliffe believed what he believed very strongly. But it wasn't just about, I'm going to stand up for something that I believe in. It was bigger than that. In fact, it was more eternal than that. Because Wycliffe, in so many ways, was at war. Wycliffe was at war against the abuses of the Pope and the Catholic Church. And for that war to be lost, whether it was in the 14th century or in the greater Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, for that war, if you will, to be lost would certainly mean a loss of the Gospel. It would be a loss of the truth of how people are made right with God. It's, it's not merely that Wycliffe believes something strongly and we should believe something strongly too. It's that Wycliffe understood so much more was at stake. And that if truth did not prevail, that the Gospel would be overrun by the tradition and the customs of the Catholic Church, that it would be lost and that people would be eternally condemned to hell because of their own sin, without knowing the truth of God's Word, which tells how men and women, boys and girls, can be born again and made right 
with God. So Wycliffe and his life and his ministry, even all of these centuries later, it matters to us because it's a reminder um, that the Gospel that we speak so freely of, that we love so much, that we understand so clearly according to Scripture and faithful preaching of Scripture, that the preservation of that Gospel has been a hard-won preservation. Um, I'm always so shocked um, when you open up your, your Bibles and you've, um, the, the children of Israel have made it out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. Joshua and his generation have led them there. And uh, there, there's just a, a haunting portion of Scripture at the end of Joshua, as you're beginning to go into the, uh, the time of, of the judges, where we read that Joshua and all his generation died, and there arose another generation who did not know the Lord, nor the works that He had done for His people Israel. How does that happen? I take that to mean that Joshua and his generation dies, and that the generation that followed did not know the Lord, nor all of the mighty works of God that He had done for His people Israel. How? How does that happen? And we could think through that at, at length, but I think it's probably safe to say that that happens because somewhere along the line, the people in Joshua's generation they just stopped proclaiming what was true. They just stopped talking about what was true. And as a result, it was lost. Shockingly so. This is why we're so thankful for those in church history that have come before us to do this work of preservation. And beloved, I think the reality for us is that still, the very essence, the very nature of Scripture remains under attack. And that we are to be those, another kind of Latin phrase, we are to be those who are semper reformanda, who are always reforming. So that we preserve in the church in our lives, the very nature and essence of God's Word. Don't be fooled. Don't be mistaken. What is happening in culture right now, it all comes back to the reality that people simply don't want to be under the authority of God and His Word. That's the issue. The issue is not about defining love what it is, who gets to love whomever. That's not the issue. The issue is, I don't want to be under authority and I am going to call the shots. That's the issue. If that's the issue, then we know that the Reformation of the 14th, 16th centuries, it's not over. And it will not be over until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Because if we stay silent, if we do not hold forth 
the very essence and nature of Scripture, there will absolutely arise a generation who does not know the Lord, nor the works that He has done for His people. I think I said that already. Uh, Let's end here. The life of Wycliffe reminds us of all that's been suffered, all that has been lost to give us what we enjoy today. So I think we honor the sufferings and the persecutions and deaths of the Reformers, so many others, when we stand upon the truth of the Word of God. First and foremost, we honor God. We honor His Word. But we honor also those that have come before us. Uh, That great cloud of witnesses that is surrounding us. We honor them as well as we ourselves in our day stand upon the very truth of the Word of God. Questions? Just open a fire hydrant. I know. Take a drink out of that. Yep. Yeah, well, it's a massive question with a you know a lot of a lot of answers. Um, again, when the when the Protestant Reformation really begins in earnest in the, the early 1500s. Um, Luther's idea was not really let's let's break apart the church and get innumerable denominations out there. That was not Luther's goal. Luther's goal and his great hope was that the church of that day, the Catholic church, would be reformed. Uh, that they would return to, a, 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 to right doctrine, right belief, and right practice. Luther's goal was not to create Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists and American Baptists and Methodists and whatever they got going on and Presbyterian, I mean, just on and on and on and on. That was not the goal. Um, after, you know, kind of after the Reformation, as things begin to kind of work themselves out, uh, you begin to see other documents being written, other documents being produced um, to kind of stand against the doctrines and the writings of the Catholic Church. And in time, as it you know, kind of always happens, people begin to, to group up kind of around those particular writings and the doctrines that were espoused in those things. And so, you know, early on, I, I think, you know, Baptists and Presbyterians are probably getting along just fine. And then the Presbyterians are like, but wait a minute, the covenant is this, and we baptize in this way. And Baptists are like, uh-uh. And uh, we still love you guys, but we can't worship together anymore. And so on and on and on, that, that kind of kind of goes that way. But I think it's just helpful to remember that Luther's goal was, let's, let's keep what we have, um, and let's just fix that. And uh, let's, let's try not to do, you know, 3,000 different denominations out there. Um, so, yeah, there's just so much, so much even in that. Yeah, yep.